please turn to 2 Kings chapter 22. 2 Kings chapter 22, I want to preach a message as a follow-up to a message I preached a couple weeks ago uh, that was titled, Save Yourselves from This Untoward Generation. And the title of this uh, message this morning is titled, The Sins of Our Fathers. Now this is not going to be a message that gives excuses to why people live in such wickedness, and it's not a message that is, uh, plays the blame game, but as we go along, I think you'll understand why it's important to recognize uh, where we come from and the judgment that comes on nations because of the sins of the fathers. But let's begin reading in Second uh, Kings chapter 22. Please stand with me as we read. This isn't that long of a chapter. I'll read the whole chapter. 2 Kings 22, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned thirty and one years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bosketh. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in all the way of David his father, and turned not, notice this, and turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. And it came to pass in the eighteenth year of King Josiah, So if you notice in verse 1, he was 8 years old when he began to reign, so he would be 26. When he was 26, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may sum the silver which is brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the door have gathered of the people, and let them deliver it into the hand of the doers of the work that have the oversight of the house of the Lord, And let them give it to the doers of the work which is in the house of the Lord to repair the breaches of the house, unto carpenters and builders and masons, and to buy timber and hewn stone, and to repair the house. Howbeit there was no reckoning made with them of the money that was delivered into their hand, because they dealt faithfully. And Hilkiah the priest said unto Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. Now what I want you to notice is, as we're reading along, is Josiah becomes king in a time when the temple's broken down and the word of God is hid. And they found it. And so uh, in verse 8 it says, Hilkiah says, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And so Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought the king word again and said, Thy servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of them that do the work and that have oversight of the house of the Lord. And Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath delivered me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass, when the king had heard the words of the book of the law, that he rent his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Achbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the scribe, and Asahiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go ye, inquire of the Lord for me, as for the people, and as for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, notice this, because our fathers have not hearkened unto the word of this book, to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam, and Ekbar, and Shaphan, and Azahiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shulam, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she dwelt in Jerusalem in the college, and they communed with her. And she said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man that sent you to me, 
Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah hath read, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be kindled against this place and shall not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, which sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, as touching the words which thou hast heard, because thine heart was tender, and because thou hast humbled thyself before the Lord, whom thou, when thou heardst what I spake against this place, and against the inhabitants thereof, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and hast rent thy clothes and wept before me, I also have heard thee, saith the Lord. Behold, therefore, I will gather thee unto thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered unto thy grave in peace, and thine eyes shall see not, not see evil, which I will bring unto this place." And they brought the king word again. You may be seated. One of the things that I want to notice just right to begin with is that Josiah, consider the land into which the culture, the society, the generation into which Josiah was born. He was born into a nation that was already cursed. God had said it, it was going to happen. And it was cursed because of the sins of his fathers. He inherited the throne of a nation that was under condemnation. No wonder he rent his clothes and, and walked humbly before the Lord. He believed the word of God. He also came to a throne of a nation that was more corrupt and wicked than it had ever been before. In my last message, I won't get into it too much today, but in my last message I pointed out the, the nation that Peter was preaching to, that generation, and how it was so wicked and corrupt when he told them to save themselves from that generation. And we compared how horribly wicked and vile our generation is out of all the generations of the world. And so Josiah was born into a society that was absolutely horrible. His personal circumstances also were not favorable. When Josiah was only eight years old, his 24-year-old father, Ammon the king, was assassinated after reigning only two years. That happened when Josiah was eight years old. This could have had a very negative effect on him. That means that his, it also speaks to his dad. It's just a weird situation that his dad was only 16 when Josiah was born. His father, although young, was wicked and did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Listen, young people, God pays attention to how you live your life. Turn over just the previous chapter over, 2 Kings chapter 1. We're going to look at Josiah's dad, and then we're going to look at his granddad. 2 Kings chapter 21 and verse 19. This is Josiah's father. Ammon was 20 and 2 when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Meshulameth, the daughter of Herez of Jotba. And he did that which was evil. Notice, he's only 22 years old. He hasn't even lived that long, and yet he's known for having done that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father Manasseh did. So he's just walking. Notice verse 21. And he walked in all the way that his father walked in, and served the idols that his father served, and worshipped them. And uh, I wanted you to notice over and over and over throughout the Old Testament, when it gives account of the kings and different men, it constantly refers to how they walked in the ways of their fathers. And they did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, even worse. And most of the time it says it even worse than their father. And so um, God is very 
intentional in pointing out that, listen, fathers, there's a great responsibility for fathers to live right and be a proper example. Children tend to walk in the way of their father and then take it to the next level. And we'll see that in this passage. And so this Ammon, he walked in all the way that his father walked and served the idols that his father served and worshipped them. And he forsook the God of his fathers and he forsook the Lord God of his fathers. This is the Lord God of his fathers going way back and walked in and walk not in the way of the Lord. And the servants of Ammon conspired against him and slew the king in his own house. And the people of the land slew all them that had conspired against the king Ammon, and the people of the land made Josiah his king in his stead. And so this is how Josiah became king at the age of eight. Another thing that was going against Josiah is Josiah, this would really be a, have an effect on the kids of our society. Josiah never got to be a kid. He never got to play with Tonka trucks and he never got to play his video games and he never got to do whatever it is that kids do. And, you know, kids get to be adults and they're 30, 40, 50 years old and they're still blaming their parents for not allowing them to be kids because they didn't for one year of their life or something. They didn't get to play as much as they wanted to. Josiah had everything going against him as to why he should turn out evil. He has all the power. He's a king at the age of eight. As he grew up and he became a teenager, he could have just followed in the path of Ammon, his dad, and Manasseh, his grandfather, and been even the most wicked king that had ever lived. But that's not the case. That's not what we find about Josiah. It says in verse 2 of chapter 22, And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in all the way of David his father, and turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. I'll get ahead of myself, but it says... Later, we'll read in in, uh, chapter 23 that Josiah not only walked in the way of the Lord and the way of David, his father, Josiah was the most righteous king that Israel ever had. He followed the Lord more than David, more than Solomon, more than Hezekiah. There was never a king as more as righteous and followed the Lord with all his heart. The word that's quoted, I'll quote it later, but it says that he followed the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might. Well, that's what we're commanded to do in the, in the law, is it not? And so Josiah was a godly king. But this is the world that he inherited. Literally, he inherited. Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh, I'm actually not going to read it. In, in 2 Kings 21, in verse 1 through 16, maybe we'll read just a little bit. I was going to read through 16, but for the sake of time, just notice, we'll begin reading. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, after the abomination of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. And he built up again the high places which Hezekiah's father had destroyed. He reared up altars for Baal and made a grove, as did Ahab king of Israel, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars. Notice this. How bad is this? He built altars in the house of the Lord. Altars to pagan gods in the house of the Lord, which the Lord, um, where the Lord had said, in Jerusalem, I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And then notice this, and he made his son to pass son to pass through the fire and observed times and used enchantments and dwelt with familiar spirits and wizards and he wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. 
And it goes on and on and, and describes. It says that while he was king, it was a violent time in Jerusalem. It said blood ran in the streets. Wickedness, a wicked society, is also going to be a violent society. Yeah. We've looked at that in the past. Pastor talked about that before the flood. Was that not the case? The more godless they became, the more they wanted to put God out of their mind and forget about God and worship other beasts and four-footed things and, and all this the more violent man becomes. And is that not what we have going on today? We don't want to acknowledge God. We don't want to acknowledge that there was even a flood. We want to think that we come from monkeys. We just want to get God out of our minds. And what's happened in in the last several decades is we become more and more violent. And that's the way it was in the days of Manasseh. Well, Josiah was born into that society. His dad only reigned two years. So from Manasseh, And in other passages, it does say, as wicked as Manasseh was, Manasseh, God saved Manasseh. And God can save anybody. God did save Manasseh, but there wasn't hardly anything changed in society. And other than Manasseh's personal life, there wasn't a whole lot changed in the land of Israel except the blood stopped running in the streets. But um, when it comes to Josiah, he had everything going against him. But God is so great, He can save anybody in any society. And he can take a person in the most wicked society that mankind has ever seen and have them be the most righteous person that is on record. Isn't that amazing? Noah, the flood, there's only out of a billion, two billion people, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And you just example after example in the word of God. Gideon, you go on. God always has a people... And some of the greatest saints are not the saints who live. Listen, the greatest saints, here's the hope for us in this society and for young people. I want young people to be encouraged. Being a Christian is not a bad thing, even in the most wicked of societies. You'll listen to the older generations talk, and and we were talking uh, the other day at our house. Older people will say, I'm so glad I don't have to live in the next decade. Listen, I understand that. But God is able and, and while we are maybe afraid of what's coming down the road, God is able, the Holy Spirit can empower people to survive and be faithful in any situation. And young people in our day and age need to be encouraged. Look unto Christ. He's going to get you through all this. And so uh, um, you can be the most godly person that this generation has ever seen. Our circumstances are not to be an excuse And our morals are not to be on a sliding scale based on what society is putting out there. As society gets worse and worse, listen, the standard is still the Word of God. It's still the Word of God. And Josiah, the key to Josiah being righteous is they found the Word of God. And when he read the Word of God, he believed the Word of God. And then when he believed the Word of God, he acted on the Word of God. And it was that simple. He looked not to the right hand. He didn't look to the left. He had the word of God. This is what we're going to do. And Josiah cleaned house. He cleaned house in the land of Israel. And we'll take a little bit of look at that later. But let's consider our society. We looked at Josiah's society. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the society in Israel during the time of Christ. I want to consider a couple things about our society, but I don't want to get into the details of it like I did last time. I want us to consider how did we get here? We are living in the most wicked society that America and even the whole world has ever seen. How do we get here? 
It's not as though this generation called the millennials, we'll just talk about everybody who was born from 2000, my daughter's 26, 28, born in 96, but we'll just say from 96, my children's children, right? From then until now. It's not like Matthias, Micah, Damon who was here, you, you on the back row, you guys were all born into a society, it wasn't a good society. You just inherited a wicked, corrupt society that your parents gave you. And your grandparents gave you, by the way. And their parents gave you. And I want to show you how that is that happened. It's not an excuse for you to live wickedly. But you did inherit. You were born into a wicked, wicked society. You were not fortunate enough to be born into the greatest generation that it's called. Going way back to the... You know, if you were born in the 20s, the 20s, by the way, were a very wicked, horrible society, just for the record. Okay, the roaring 20s, God judged that generation. I'll just put this on record, too. This is my honest opinion. There's a reason that the world wars happened. Society, at the turn of the 1900s, when the 1900s rolled around, was getting extremely wicked. And God judged the countries in Europe, God judged the countries in Japan, and God judged this country with those wars. Man has a sin problem, and God judges sin. It's always been that way. But our society is worse. I'm not going to deny that. We're worse than we've ever been. But our, the millennials were not born into a wholesome society in which the divorce rate was only 10%, where everybody stayed married. In fact, the millennials are born into a society in which the majority of families don't stay together. They were born into a society already in 2020 or 2000 and going off into 2010 in which marriage was becoming legal. By the time they were old enough to remember anything, marriage is just legal. It's a thing. They, or gay marriage. They don't even know. Young people don't even know of a world in which gay people... You mean they had to vote on that? You mean they had to... Like the Supreme Court had to make decisions on whether gay people could get married or not? I just thought that's the way it was. You see what I'm saying? They're just born into it. Um, they're born into a society where drugs were already in school. Yeah. Prevalent in school. It's not about the kids, the high school kids sneaking out to the, to the bleachers out by the football field and, and drinking beer. No. And it's not about in the 60s and 70s, kids getting together and smoking weed. And maybe doing a little LSD. No. Kids are getting fentanyl and heroin and meth and everything else in the schools in our society. The war on drugs has been an absolute, complete failure. Yeah. Concerning violence, the newest generation was born into a world with metal detectors already in the schools. I mean, they're already there. But most of us here today know of a day in which you would never even think of having metal. Why would you need a metal detector in a school unless you were in Watts back in the 70s or 60s or, you know, in, in, in Compton or something? I mean, come on. I don't even think they had them there. It, and so that's just life. Oh, having to have police on the school premises. Why? Because school shootings were already a thing. They're already a thing by 2000. We already had Columbine. We already had multiple, multiple shootings during the 90s. And things were already going haywire, mass shootings. They were born into a world where you cannot say goodbye to your loved ones at the airport at the hangar like I did when I was a kid. But kids are just born into a world. Oh, this is just the way. It, you mean you used to be able to walk to the hangar with you? Yeah, it was actually, 
as wicked as it was in the 80s and 90s in America and the 70s, it's wicked and horrible and violent. It hasn't been a peaceful place. Okay, in the 90s, we're not peaceful. But our world, the world, has ramped up. It's this way worldwide. You can't see your loved ones to the air. Why? Because people blow each other up. It, it, we're in a violent, violent society. There's all these checks and balances. There's no TSA, Homeland Security, or any of that in 2000. But it's just a way of life now. Now let's go back. I could go on and on, but let's go back to 1974 when I was born. I'm the old guy now. I'm getting to be the old guy. And some people in here are the old, old people, and I'm getting to be the old guy. You know, I'm 49. I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm ha- I've been having heart problems lately. I've got to go see a cardiologist soon. I got, like, I got things going on. I'm not young. Um, so let's go back to way back to 1974 when I was born. And you guys are laughing. For a lot of for some people here, that's like 1974, man. I mean, that's like way back there. That's like at the end of Vietnam. Like, that's a whole nother... Okay, so let's go back there. For those of you who were alive then, and that was your heyday, what was society like? Let's just be honest. What was society like in 1974? Were preachers didn't really have to preach against sin in 1974? Was Was America just a wonderful place in 1974? Be honest. In 1974... Men had been running around with long hair for a decade. I mean, it was prevalent. There was, more, there was actually more guys running around with long hair back then than now. Because the younger generation rebelled against those guys, against the hippie generation. They all just cut all their hair off. I know, because in the late 80s and 90s, all the rock groups began either having long, scraggly hair. and You know how in the 80s it was all the, the big hair bands and all the pretty hair and all the guys were really trying to... And they were wearing makeup like Kiss and all those guys... But then in the 90s, they started, the grunge scene came along and all the, well, we won't have our hair quite as long and we'll intentionally look filthy. But by the late 90s, all the rock groups were just cutting all their hair off. Well, there went the, re- the excuse of, you know, guys have long hair because rock music makes you grow your hair out. Because they all rebelled and grew, all, everybody just cut all their hair off. You see, man just wants to rebel. But back then, in the 70s, men were running around with long hair. That was their way of rebelling against their parents who believed in nice, short haircuts. It's just, they're going to do their thing. And they were rebelling. I was born into a world where men wore long hair. Um, women wore miniskirts. That predates my existence, miniskirts and all that immorality, right? Um, now it's yoga pants in public. Um, sex, drugs, and rock and roll was a term, and it was alive and well before I ever saw the light of day. Mick Jagger, believe it or not, Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones just turned 84. We're talking the older generation. The, the generation that really brought in rank, vile immorality and open drug abuse in public. They're 84 years old now. That, it wasn't the good old days. But if you listen to people... They talk about like it was so good back then. Woodstock just celebrated its 54th anniversary. Well, I'm only 49. And anybody who knows anything about Woodstock knows what a horrible, horrible experience that was in America. That was a prime example of what was going on and the rot that was happening in the younger generation at that time. I won't get into it. Woodstock was horrible. Yes. 
abortion was already legal. I was born into a world where abortion is just legal. Well, who made that happen? My parents' generation. And more importantly than my parents' generation, their generation actually had a huge, their parents' generation actually had a huge part in abortion becoming legal. Yes. Believe it or not, the greatest generation brought in some really bad things. The women's, women's liberation movement was going on lives live and well in the 60s and 70s. And so, um, let's go back to when the baby boomer generation, when they were children, in the 50s and 60s. I remember, I won't dwell too much on this, but I've listened to my parents and other people talk about going to public school. You know, my parents going to public school and being taught evolution. Right? We came from monkeys. The world's millions of years old. Right? Who was teaching? I'm just trying to present things. Like, things are worse now. But how did we get here? The greatest generation was teaching their children that we come from monkeys. Yeah. That's real. And so while on the surface, the families were better, and, the, and that generation was trying with the rebellious hippie ch- teenagers, but the reality is the downhill slide began before the hippies. Yes. It began yes. when... In schools, somehow, in that wonderful generation of good people, it became accepted to teach children that we come from monkeys. It was publicly accepted. Now, there was a lot of people rejecting that. It doesn't change the fact that the greatest generation was teaching their children evolution. And here we are today. See... The judgment of God is going to fall on this country because of the sins of our fathers. It's going to fall on this world because of the sins yes. of our fathers. And the reason that the world is going to be so horrible and it's, got good, it's going to get worse. And the reason it's going to get worse is because more and more and millions and billions and billions of people are being born into families that know nothing about God. And their fathers and their mothers know nothing about God. So what hope do you think those kids have? Unless they hear the gospel from an outside source, they also, they're also they not getting it from home. And kids haven't been getting it from home for a long time. And so, um, what's the point of all this? Where do, of what I'm saying, where do we come from? How do we get here? When we understand the depravity of man according to the word of God, and this is really about the depravity of man. When we understand the depravity of man according to the word of God, man is a rebel by nature. Yes. And it doesn't matter how wicked his dad is, he's going to take it to the next level. Yes. That's Study history. Man resists authority from birth. It doesn't matter if his dad is a bad dude, he's still going to rebel against authority. Unchecked. Pastor mentioned this last week. Unchecked, as with before the flood. Unchecked. A society will eventually self-destruct. It will self-destruct. It's happened over and over and over down through history. How far can it go? We look at today and we look at how bad it is. How far can it go? I've had some of these discussions with you guys. How far can it go? When I got into a little bit last week, but 
We're such a perverse, corrupt society that when the children of gay parents rebel against their parents or want to take it to the next level, the only way to be creative is to physically, through surgery, alter your body, transgender this and that, or to start identifying as an animal. And that's happening. People put on costumes and they want to identify as animals. And the high school here, in, uh, we were told by Silas's teacher at his Christian school, that at the high school here in Pulse Falls, they've had two students now, two furry, I think, furbies or furries or whatever, kids that run around dressed like animals, role play, they, they think that they're cats or dogs or possums or whatever. I wish more of them would be possums because then they would just lay around and do nothing. But the thing is, is oh, they're requesting litter boxes. I read an article, I read an article where a guy was saying, he was an adult, 25 years old, explaining this situation that's become a fad on TikTok and all that other stuff. You want to protect your kids, man, get them off of Instagram and TikTok and all that. You can prevent them from seeing something that they have no business even seeing. It shouldn't even be introduced to them. But on TikTok and this, these guys, this guy's explaining now. We dress up and act like animals, you know. It's not all about, not that sex doesn't happen, but it's not all about sex. I'm telling you, what's next? Bestiality. Yeah. The Word of God actually has to say something against that because right. man will do that. Yeah. And when a man identifies as a monkey or a dog, and you can't make it, Ill- well, we'll have to change our laws. We can't make bestiality illegal because he identifies as a dog. I mean, it's just in his... And you might think I'm crazy and I'm overreaching, but we're right there. We're right there with this identity movement and all of that. It goes further and further and further. If someone wants to identify as a cannibal, is it a hate crime to deny him the meal of his choice? The reason I mention that is because there are societies in history that have been cannibals. How did they get there? Now, in our civilized society, it's like, oh, that's ridiculous to think that there would be a, you know, a social group of cannibals on Facebook or something. Well, there have been whole tribes. Missionaries would go. I was just listening to preaching this week. The reason it was brought to my mind is I was listening to a guy talk about a missionary who's given his testimony when he went there. And this guy went and was a missionary to cannibals, and God ended up saving a bunch of them. That's the only hope for man when he hits rock bottom. God can still save even cannibals. But that's how far man can go. History has proven it, how far you can go. What happened to the Mayans? What happened to the Aztecs? What happened to a lot of societies? Some of them disappeared. Some of them ended up just becoming nothing but some tribes running around the jungle eating right. each other. Right. And we are mistaken if we think that in our day and age, a bunch of white people can't end up doing the same thing. I read an article. I'm going to go ahead and go here just because I'm here. But I read an article about heavy metal in Sweden and how they can't understand Sweden is Sweden and Norway those countries are the the happiest places on the planet the people there are the happiest anywhere they got all their social government they got everything I mean everything it's beautiful country I mean it's just one big happy place and and there's actually a mystery as to why these these people listen to the it's the highest percentage of population that is into death metal and and um, heavy metal and and all this horrible angry music 
And they were mentioning how that one of the things about their music is that they sing about a lot of the paganism and they sing about the the Norse mythology and, and Odin and, and going back to the pagan roots. And they identify with that deep down. They were saying that although that they are friendly and nice and civil and all of this, their music is a way for them to release their angst and manage some of the problems that they have. Because in that society, you can't act out. You can't, you'll be rejected if you act out. So they listen and they go to heavy metal concerts. And at heavy metal concerts is where they have mosh pits. And at mosh, in mosh pits is where it's full-out brawls and just war on each other. They go there and listen. That's, a, that's one of the most civilized areas of the world is going back to its pagan roots and in their music, and they openly embrace the idea of their culture and their history. People eventually will want to go back to their ethnic paganism and where they yeah. came from. If not for God, it doesn't matter whether we got cell phones in our hands. If not for God, man will absolutely right. self-destruct and go yes. back to the dark ages. Yes. So what's the hope of this generation? I want to look at two generations that were on fire for God, unlike the generations of their fathers. Knowing these two generations we're going to look at, they knew that God was going to judge the nation for the sins of their fathers. And they went ahead and repented and turned to God and served God with all their heart. And God blessed them for it. It is very clear in our passage that although Josiah's was Josiah's generation and he was and although he was the best king ever it did not undo the judgment that was coming on the nation because of the sins of the fathers. It said in our passage when we read, "I'm going to judge this nation, but because you've repented, oh, you will see death before the judgment comes." I just while I'm thinking about it, it's not just Josiah. Don't think that just Josiah repented and served God during this time. This is also the time, if I'm remembering correctly, and I get my prophets mixed up, but I'm pretty sure that Isaiah was preaching during this time. And at the, be- at the end of Josiah's reign was the beginning of Jeremiah's reign. And we know him as the weeping prophet because all the followed. But Josiah had Isaiah, he had Jeremiah, and he had other prophets who else, who other really young people were benefited as a result of this society that saw a revival? Daniel right. and his friends. Right. They were 10, 11, 12 years old, coming up under Isaiah, Jeremiah. They knew what Josiah was like as a king. And when this revival carried weight, and it enabled the people of God to go, those who were the people of God, to go into captivity, still serving God, and still living the right way. I just want to get that out of the way in case I forget it later. And so, um, I also want to note that Josiah used neither the excuse that judgment was coming as any way to not repent, nor did he use the circumstances as a reason to not repent as well. The standard of of righteousness that Josiah lived was the word of God. How far his society had fallen had absolutely no bearing on how far he would go in following his God. The first generation that I want to consider here is Josiah's. And then we'll look at another. Note his personal character as a leader of that generation. I already read 1 Kings 22 too. It says, And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father and turned not aside to the right to the left. Verse 19. Because thine heart was tender and thou hast humbled thyself before the Lord. That's important. Thy heart was tender, and thou hast humbled thyself before the Lord. 
when thou heardst what I spake against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and because thou hast rent thy clothes and wept before me, I also have heard thee, saith the Lord. What a wonderful thing that no matter how bad this society is, no matter how bad our generation is, God can hear us. When the rest of our society has no hope, there's no help, they can turn to their drugs, they can turn to their music, they can turn to their family, friends, whatever, but God hears his people. Verse 20, Behold, therefore, I will gather thee unto thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered into thy grave in peace, and thine eyes shall not see the evil which I will bring on this place. Now go over to 2325. It summarizes Josiah's life. He died in battle at the age of 39. Like unto him, there was no king before him that turned unto the Lord with all his heart and all his soul and all his might. According to the law of Moses, neither after him arose any like him. So you see, you can do it. Human beings really can love the Lord their God and serve the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their might. It's possible. I think sometimes we look at a verse like that and we think, well, that's like being Christ-like. We're never going to be able to be like Christ, so why bother? You can. You can, and the Lord loves it. When we do the best we can, when we sell out for him. I want us to note, he did not wait until he was older to turn to the Lord with all his heart, soul, and mind. You know, it's, you know he was serving the Lord, and he, and he was headed in the right direction. He never, got, he never got to be old. He died at 39. So when it says that he did this, he did this as a... 24, 26, 28, 32, 34-year-old. He did it as a young person, a lot younger than I am. When we read about his zealousness and all he was doing for God, he was in his late 20s. So what's the main point? It does not take a lifetime. We need to grasp this. It does not take a lifetime of growth to finally live for God properly. Too many of us blame our apathy on how long... Uh, we have been born again or how short a time we have been born again you know it's like well I'm getting there I'm working on it and well you've been saved for 15 years and still can't hardly see any fruit like no that's not how it's supposed to be well you know I'll, I'll eventually you know I got my job and I got a lot of things going on but one of these days I'll sell out um no if that's your attitude you probably never will There have been people who've been saved for 40 years who are still apathetic. He was not passive, but he took action and was zealous. It wasn't just up here. His faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, or in in God, his his, uh, reading of the Word of God, it was not just to go up here. It was like, okay, this is what the Word of God says. Now, let's put it into action. Let's actually do what you see in the life of Josiah is he actually did what the Word of God said. The Word of God said how to deal with witches. It said how to deal with sodomites. It said, here's how it's supposed to be. And he went through that nation and he cleaned house. According, not to his own idea, he didn't get carried away. Even though it seems like he got really carried away, all he was doing was what the Bible said to do. Isn't it sad when 
all we do is what the Bible says, that we're extreme radicals. Josiah was an extreme radical, even for all the kings of Israel, Judah, Israel. He was a radical. And yet all he was, do- all he was doing was just doing what the Bible said. Imagine how zealous we would be. I mean, we all have work to do on this. If we would just do what it says. Yes. Man, it'd be amazing what could happen. Was the majority of the nation saved? I already addressed this. No, not at all. But enough were saved to have a great impact. I want to take a look at the result of, of this revival that happened in this country and, and King Josiah's, uh, really his personal testimony and how he was living. He said, let's do this. This is how things are going to be. And the nation followed suit. Yeah, 2 Kings 23. I don't have the verse down here. But it says, And the king commanded all the people, saying, Keep the Passover. Just listen to this. Keep the Passover unto the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of this covenant. Not any more, not any less. Let's just keep the Passover unto the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of this covenant. Surely there was not holding such a Passover from the days of the judges that judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel, which includes the dedication of the temple. It includes the time of David. Imagine that. Greater than that. There had never been a Passover like that. It says, nor are the days of all the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year, when Josiah was 26 years old, is when this Passover took place. So when Josiah was 26, wherein this Passover was holden unto the Lord in Jerusalem. That's an amazing thing. That is, what made it so great? Was it that so many people turned out? Or was it the Spirit which with, which with this Passover took place? I believe it, it started with the leadership. And then it trickled down to the people. And the nation was being cleaned up. It was so bad, the Sodomites had built their houses They joined up. Their houses joined up next to the house of the Lord. And it says very specifically that he tore down the houses of the Sodomites that that dwelt by the house of the Lord. He cleaned house. And as a result of cleaning house, they saw a greater Passover than had ever happened before. I want to move on. The second generation that served God in the face of judgment that I want to look at is that of the early church. In Jerusalem and Judea, you might say, "Well, that's the Old Testament." Well, turn over to Acts chapter uh, Acts chapter four. And by this time, we're looking at probably ten thousand people have already been saved. We have three thousand day of Pentecost. We have five thousand were saved on another day. It says the Lord was adding daily to the church such as should be saved and so forth. And then it just gives us this statement in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. Um, it says, And the multitude of them that believed, notice this, they were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them in that uh, of the things that he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power gave the apostles witness And so their preaching of the cross and the gospel was with power. It says, with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And great grace was upon them all. 
Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands and houses sold them and brought the price of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. I want us to notice the end of verse 33 after that colon. It says they had power, with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we're thinking about this generation of godly people, in the midst of a condemned, as we looked at in the last message, in the midst of a condemned generation, they were in Jerusalem, a city that in a few years is going to be leveled. As I pointed out in my last message, 1.5 million Jews died by the sword in the land of Israel in 70 AD, or leading, leading up to it and 70 AD. And in the midst of that, the majority of the people around them were rejecting God, had rejected the Messiah, crucified the Messiah, their Messiah. But this great multitude, a church of over 10,000 people, and it says, here's what I love, and great grace was upon them all. In the midst of all that, great grace was upon them all. Can we have that in this society? Is it possible to... See, we're always people, preachers and lay people alike, everybody's just talking about how it's getting worse and worse, and they got their head down. And they're just bemoaning the fact that it's getting so bad. But listen, God can bring revival in the midst of all great, great wickedness, in the worst of societies in the worst generations that have ever been in the word of God. God dealt greater with the people who turned to him in those generations than he did any other generation. They had a more righteous king in the time of Josiah. They had a greater Passover. Their worship was more intense. I read a thing about uh, Elisha and all the miracles that he did. And it was talking about there's a pattern where the men of God shine the brightest and the greatest miracles were always done when the, wick, when the country was at its absolute rock bottom and worse than ever. And that's true. And Josiah, at the end of the time of Judah, it's on the brink of destruction. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. They're going to be carried away captive. And in that society, they had a greater pass, Passover and a greater time of worship than in the history of that country. And there is absolutely no reason that we see here in the early church, at, at the end of the nation of Israel as, at that time, God's going on to the Gentiles, and at the end of that time, these are Jews that we're reading about here, by the way, in Acts chapter 4. So we're talking specifically about the people of the nation of Israel. There were Jews that were on fire for God, and they were the epitome. I don't think there has ever been another church that has been as right with God and in unity. There have been some good churches, but as this church was in its early stage. And I'll go back to Josiah and bring out this point. How is that possible? Because these guys had just been saved. They hadn't been growing in the Lord for 30 years before they finally got to where it says, and they were all of one heart and one soul and one mind. It happened like that. Because God got a hold of them. Because the Holy Spirit was working in their life. And people talk about, oh, well, you got to understand that was the day of Pentecost and that was the early church and God was working differently back then. It was the Holy Spirit that was working back then. And the Holy Spirit is alive and well today. And God has worked in revivals even in the 1900s in different places across this planet. 
And it was the Holy Spirit that was working. And so there's no reason why our churches shouldn't be on fire for God. There's no reason that people, millennials, who are saved and the kids who are being born two years ago and tomorrow that the millennials are having, that they can't be on fire for God. Amen. Regardless of the society. Right. It's not about... I'm so sick of hearing people talk about the generation. And it's like, oh, kids these days. It's... It's about what's, what's really important is what God is going to do with people regardless of when they're born. And I've said it over and I'll keep saying it over and over because we need to look at things hopefully and, and, and optimistically knowing that God's still on the throne. God is going, I think the greatest generation yet in light of what I just said about how God's people stand up when it gets really bad and shine the brightest, perhaps God's greatest generation ever is going to be in the tribulation. Yeah. Read about the read the word of God. What it says about the the saints that are in heaven. And, and John says, whose robes are these? Who are these? Well, these are those who have died, who refuse to take the mark of the beast. There's going to be countless and countless numbers of people who refuse to be identified with the Antichrist. Plus the 144,000 and on and on. God is going to continue to save people. There's always hope. That's the bottom line. There's always hope. And I don't care if it's now or it's in the tribulation. Until God's done saving, there's always hope for any society. When I want to close with this main point. The sobering thing. And this is a message we need to take to the lost. We might be rescued from the ultimate judgment of God as the people of God. And we can live in this horrible world while they're being judged. And we can live in this world joyfully, even in persecution. If you go back to Acts chapter 4, after those men were persecuted, they were rejoicing. They actually were rejoicing. It says, they reported all that had been done to them, how they'd been abused and all this. And it says in verse 24, And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, And they began worshiping God for who He is. In the face of persecution, they were joyful. It's not about our circumstances. Right. But we need to notice that when God says judgment is coming, and this is a message we need to be taking to the world, when God says judgment's coming, it's coming. In Josiah's day, Judgment was coming. God blessed him and God blessed that generation. Judgment was coming. And I think we can draw a lot of parallels from the, de- the time of Josiah and his generation and our generation. There's a horrible judgment that's coming. <clears throat> and God said, I said it's going to happen. It's still going to happen. And God has said that He's going to judge this world. And he's going to judge this world. Judgment fell in the time of Josiah. And it fell in the time of Israel. But those who trusted in God were just fine. And they still are fine, by the way. And they're going to be fine for eternity. They're just fine. But that generation is a hurting generation right now. And they always will be. See, it's not just about what we suffer in this world. But there is a great tribulation coming. Jesus spoke of a coming great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, never else. This is from Jesus' mouth. No, nor ever shall be. 
And except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Jesus said it. There's a judgment coming that like has never happened before. This country, no matter how hard we try politically, no matter what we do, pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps, do things the American way. This country, just like the rest of the world, will one day fall. And it will reel in absolute misery. There is going to be one plague after the other coming in short time. One third of all the trees are going to burn. And 100% of all the grasses. No matter what man does to try to control climate change, one day the Word of God says a third of the trees are burned up and 100% of all the grass. A third of, every time we have horrible forest fires and things are getting worse and worse, I'm thinking, man, this should be a warning to people about how things are going to be next level in the tribulation like man has never seen. A third of all the animals in the sea will die, and a third of the ships in the sea will be lost. A third of the rivers will turn to wormwood and be bitter to such a degree that it will kill people. The Word of God says, and people will die. For five months, locusts with power and sting of a scorpion, whose only, only purpose is to torment people, will be here. Scripture declares that this judgment will fall, quote, only on those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. That means there's going to be a bunch of people of God who are not going to be stung. But those who don't have the seal are going to be stung. And so this judgment is just not indiscriminate. It's only for the wicked. And to them it was given that they should not kill them. The scorpions are not going to kill the wicked people during tribulation. But they should be tormented five months. It's intentional that they don't die. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. And in those days shall men seek death, and they shall not find it. And shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. Isn't that a sobering thing? People are going to want to die. There's going to be a lot of suicide attempts is what that means. And they're all going to fail. Because God is judging them, and he wants them to feel in the, the, the pain of that misery. Another third of the men are killed. Revelation 9 says, By these three was a third part of men killed, by, by the fire and the smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and with their tails. For their tails were like unto serpents, and they had heads, and with them they do hurt. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, notice this, the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols and gold and silver and brass and stone and wood. See, in the tribulation, man's going to have the same old problem that he's always had. This is just basic old sin problem right here. Idolatry, worshiping devils and idols, gold, silver, brass, and stone and wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. That's the same problem that they had in the days of Elijah that we looked at in, in Sunday school. Elijah was saying, oh, perhaps Baal can't hear you. Perhaps, well... Man's still going to be just as blind and stupid in the tribulation. He's not going to give them up. But notice this, it says, Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries. And then it gets a little more personal to the average person. Nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. Man is always going to be a fornicator. He's going to be a liar. He's going to be selfish. And man is just going to keep on keeping on. Without God, 
there's no hope. The only hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we look at our society, I've gone long once again. As we look at our society, we can rest assured God is on the throne. And it's only a matter of time till sin's going to be dealt with. What are we going to do? Saved and then the lost. As the children of God, what are we going to do? We recognize this is a world we live in. Are we going to blame our worldly living? I'm talking about Christians. Are we going to blame our worldly living on the society in which we live and have a sliding scale of righteousness by which we live? Or will we consider the word of God to be the standard? Are we going to just throw up our hands and declare, nobody can endure sound doctrine anymore, so I guess I'll just hole up in my house and play house church with my family? Or will we continue to serve God as we should, knowing God still has a people to save no matter how bad it gets? Do we dwell on what the word of God says concerning how bad the sin will be in the last days? Or do we prefer to acknowledge that no matter what scenario there is in the last days, God's people are right there in the middle of it in the word of God. To the end, God's people are right there in the middle of it. God's not done, as I've already said. And as long as we are alive, we should not be done. That's the takeaway for us as the people of God in this society. He's not done. He's not done with me. I'm still alive. He's not done with the world. I guess he's, I got something to do. We need to be active like Josiah. He was told that he was going to die early. And yet he, it didn't phase him. He went ahead and just kept doing what he was doing and ended up dying in battle. For those who are lost, and have never repented of their sin and trusted in Christ for salvation and the forgiveness of sins. Are you going to do like the rest of society and blame your parents and grandparents for the situation you were born into and use that as a reason to reject God? Well, God doesn't love me. If He did, He wouldn't have put me in this situation. I don't see how a loving God could give me a family or a lack of family. There's a lot of people that live in horrible, horrible situations due to their parents. That doesn't mean God doesn't love you. Perhaps you would be the first one in your family to be a Christian if you were saved. Don't face the judgment of God just because they will face the judgment of God or they have already faced the judgment of God. The only one responsible for your sin, no matter how bad your parents were, at the end of the day, your sin is your problem. It's between you and God. The only one responsible for your sin and what you've done in your life is you. And what you're going to do. It's only you. And there is only one way. I'll close with these words. There is only one way to be relieved of the burden of sin. Your inability to live for God. To change your life. To just Sin is a burden. Won't get into it any more than that. Sin is a burden. Yes. And there's only one way to be relieved of that. Believe on the Lord Jesus Amen. Christ. Turn to God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Pastor.